0: Chapter Thirty Four of the Cliff Climbers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox LibriVox.org. The Cliff Climbers by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter Thirty Four: A Battle of Bucks. Carl had scarcely finished speaking when, as if to illustrate still farther the habits of the Ibex, a curious incident occurred to the animal upon which their eyes were fixed. It ceased to be a solitary individual, for, while they were gazing at it, another Ibex made its appearance upon the cliff, advancing towards the one first seen. The newcomer was also a male, as its huge, scimitar-shaped horns testified, while in size, as in other respects, it resembled the one already on the rock as much as if they had been brothers. It was not likely they were so. At all events, the behavior of the former evinced anything but a fraternal feeling. On the contrary, it was advancing with a hostile intent, as its attitudes clearly proved. Its muzzle was turned downward and inward, until the bearded chin almost touched its chest, while the tips of its horns, instead of being thrown back upon its shoulders, their usual position when the animal stands erect, were elevated high in the air. Moreover, its short tail, held upright and jerking about with a quick nervous motion, told that the animal meditated mischief. Even at so great a distance the spectators could perceive this, for the forms of both the Ibex were so clearly outlined against the sky that the slightest motion on the part of either could be perceived with perfect distinctness. The newcomer, when first observed, appeared to be approaching by stealth, as if he intended to play the cowardly assassin, and butt the other over the cliff. Indeed, this was his actual design, as was discovered in the sequel and had the other only remained for six seconds longer in the attitude in which he had been first seen his assailant would no doubt have at once succeeded in his treacherous intent we are sorry to have to say that he did succeed though not without a struggle and the risk of being himself compelled to take that desperate leap which he had designed for his antagonist it was probably the voice of Caspar that hindered the immediate execution of this wicked intention, though, alas, it only stayed it for a short time. Caspar, on seeing the treacherous approach, had involuntarily uttered a cry of warning. Though it could not have been understood by the imperiled Ibex, it had the effect of startling him from his dreamy attitude and causing him to look around. In that look, he perceived his danger, and, quick as thought, took measures to avert it. Suddenly raising himself on his hind legs and using them as a pilot, he wheeled about and then came to the ground on all fours, face to face with his adversary. He showed no sign of any desire to retreat, but seemed to accept the challenge as a matter of course. Indeed, from his position it would have been impossible for him to have retreated with any chance of safety the cliff upon which he had been standing was a sort of promontory projecting beyond the general line of the precipice and towards the mountain slope above his escape had already been cut off by his challenger on all other sides of him was the beetling cliff he had no alternative but fight or been knocked over it was less a matter of choice than necessity that determined him upon standing his ground. This determination he had just time to take, and just time to put himself in an attitude of defense, when his antagonist charged towards him. Both animals, at the same instant, uttered a fierce, snorting sound, and rising upon their hind legs, stood fronting each other like a brace of bipeds. In this movement, the spectators recognize the exact mode of combat practiced by common goats. for just in the same fashion does the ibex exhibit his prowess. Instead of rushing horizontally, head to head, and pressing each other backwards, as rams do in their contests, the ibex, after rearing aloft, come down again, horns foremost, using the weight of their bodies as the propelling power, each endeavouring to crush the other between his massive crest and the earth. Several times in succession did the two combatants repeat their rearings aloft and the downward strokes of their horns, but it soon became evident that the one who had been the assailant was also to be the conqueror. He had an advantage in the ground, for the platform which his adversary occupied and from which he could not escape was not wide enough to afford room for any violent movements, and the imminent danger of getting a hoof over the cliff evidently inspired him with fear and constraint. The assailant, having plenty of space to move in, was able to back and feel at pleasure, now receding foot by foot, then rushing forward, rising a wreck, and striking down again. Each time he made his onslaught with renewed impatience derived from the advantage of the ground as well as the knowledge that if his blow failed he should only have to repeat it whereas on the part of his opponent the failure of a single stroke or even of a guard would almost to a certainty be the prelude to his destruction whether it was that the ibex attacked was the weaker animal of the two or whether the disadvantage of the ground was against him it soon became evident that he was no match for his assailant. From the very first he appeared to act only on the defensive, and in all likelihood, had the road been open to him, he would have turned tail at once and taken to his heels. But no opportunity for flight was permitted him at any moment from the beginning of the contest, and none was likely to be given him until it should end. The only chance of escape that appeared, even to him, was to make a grand leap and clear his adversary, horns and all. The idea seemed at length to take possession of his brain, for all of a sudden he was keen to forsake his attitude of defense and bound high into the air, as if to get over his adversary's horns and hide himself among the safer snowdrifts of the mountains. If such was his intent, it proved a sad failure. While soaring in the air, all his forefeet raised high off the ground, the huge horns of his adversary were impelled with fearful force against his ribs, the stroke tossing him like a shuttlecock clear over the edge of the cliff. The blow had been delivered so as to project his body with a revolving impetus into the air, and turning round and round it fell with a heavy concussion into the bottom of the valley, where after rebounding full six feet from the ground, it fell back again, dead as a stone. It was some seconds before the spectators could recover from surprise at an incident so curious, though it was one that may often be witnessed by those who wander among the wild cracks of the Himalayas, where combats between the males of the ibex, the tahir, the borel or Himalayan wild sheep, and also the rams of the gigantic, ovis ammon are of common occurrence. These battles are oft fought upon the edge of a beetling precipice, for it is in such places that these four species of animals delight to dwell, and not unfrequently the issue of the contest is such as that witnessed by our adventurers one of the combatants being butted or pushed right over the cliff. It does not follow that the animal thus put or the combat, is always killed. On the contrary, unless the precipice be one of stupendous height, an ibex, or tahir, or borel, will get up again after one of those fearful falls, and either run or limp away from the spot, perhaps to recover and try his luck and strength in some future encounter with the same adversary. One of the most remarkable instances of this kind is related by the intelligent sportsman colonel markham and by him vouched for as a fact that came under his own observation we copy his account verbatim i witnessed one of the most extraordinary feats performed by an old tahir that i or any other man ever beheld i shot him when about eighty yards overhead upon a ledge of rocks he fell perpendicularly that distance and without touching the ground or the sides of the precipice rebounded and fell again about fifteen yards farther down. I thought he was knocked to atoms, but he got up and went off, and although we tracked him by his blood to a considerable distance, we were after all unable to find him. My young readers may remember that many similar feats have been witnessed in the Rocky Mountains of America, performed by the bighorn, a wild sheep. That inhabits these mountains, so closely resembling the Ovis Ammon of the Himalayas as to be regarded by some naturalists as belonging to the same species. The hunters of the American wilderness positively assert that the bighorn fearlessly flings himself from high cliffs, alighting on his horns and, then rebounding into the air like an elastic ball, recovers his feet unhurt, and even unstunned by the tremendous heather. No doubt, there is a good deal of exaggeration in these hunter stories, but it is nevertheless true that most species of wild goats and sheep, as well as several of the rock-loving antelopes, the chamois and clipspringer, for instance, can do some prodigious feats in the leaping line, and such as it is difficult to believe in by anyone not accustomed to the habits of these animals. It is not easy to comprehend, how Colonel Markham's Tahir could have fallen eighty yards—that is, two hundred and forty feet—to say nothing of the supplementary descent of forty-five feet farther, without being smashed to smithereens! But although we may hesitate to give credence to such an extraordinary statement, it would not be a proper thing to give it a flat contradiction. Who knows whether there may not be in the bones of these animals some elastic principle or quality? Enabling them to counteract the effects of such great falls, there are many mechanical contrivances of animal life as yet, but very imperfectly understood, and it is well known that nature has wonderfully adapted her creatures to the hounds and habits for which she has designed them. It may be then that these wild goats and sheep, the blondins and leotards of the quadruped world, are gifted with certain saltatory powers and furnished with structural contrivances which are altogether wanting to other animals not requiring them. It would not be right, therefore, without a better knowledge of the principles of animal mechanism to contradict the statement of such a respectable authority as Colonel Markham, especially since it appears to be made in good faith and without any motive for exaggeration. Our adventurers had entered into no discussion of the subject on observing the descent of the ibex. Indeed, there was nothing to suggest such speculations, for the creature had fallen from such an immense height and come down with such a thump upon the hard turf that it never occurred to any of them to fancy that there was a single grasp of breath left in its body. Nor was there for on reaching the ground after its rebound the animal lay with limbs loose and limp and without sign of motion evidently a carcass End of chapter thirty four